This series contains depictions of violent assault and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Listen to this series carefully and let us know if anything you hear in this show jogs a memory of yours. And if you've got a tip, you can call us at 415-570-9299. SFPD released a composite sketch near the end of October 1975 based on a description given by the diplomat who was attacked in Fox Plaza earlier that year. Was this the same man behind the murder of Jay Stevens in Golden Gate Park? Harold Goldberg at Land's End? The multiple murders on Ocean Beach? Police thought so, but they couldn't prove it. Risks aside, publishing the sketch was pivotal. It was an opportunity to enlist the public in an effort to rid San Francisco of a serial murderer. My newspaper, The Chronicle, published the sketch in a short story in November 1975, and then again months later at the bottom of a larger series about sadomasochist culture in the gay community. At the end of that series, the paper made mention of a killer known as the Doodler. The San Francisco Sentinel, the gay newspaper, published the sketch too, about a week before The Chronicle. This was actually their second big break in the Doodler case. Only a year earlier, they were the first outlet to notice a pattern in the Ocean Beach murders. Along with the sketch, they printed a clear and direct message. There was a serial killer on the loose, and he was targeting gay men. Now there was new and desperately needed publicity on the case, and readers had a number to call if they had any information. With the sketch, the entire SFPD had a face to look for in the crowd, and queer people had a face to watch for in the bars. The doodler, couldn't hide in the shadows anymore. I'm Kevin Fagan. From the San Francisco Chronicle, Ugly Duckling Films, and Neon Hum Media, this is the untold story of The Doodler. I had a picture in my mind of The Doodler. There was a flyer out with him. This is James Andre Bowles. I was an officer, blue suit, driving a black and white with my partner. In November of 1975, Bowles was just off a short stint in homicide, but still on the force and still in touch. Well, San Francisco homicide, you know, we we thought it was the best homicide unit on earth. They were working on the doodler at that time. And so I talked to everybody. It was a very, very uh, big topic of discussion. Five people had been killed, two more assaulted. And now that there was a composite sketch, it felt like only a matter of time until someone found this guy. Like a lot of cops, James Bowles wanted that someone to be him. I knew what he looked like. And so I was working alone one night. And so I told my my lieutenant, I said, uh, I'm going to go look for this this homicide suspect. And I don't remember calling him the doodler, but I'm going to go look for this homicide suspect. I'm going to go down on foot and see if I can spot him. So I went to 18th and Castro, and I spent the evening there. Bowles walked around in the Castro trying to envision the doodler. A black man, about six feet tall, slight build, around 20 years old, and matching the composite police sketch. Well, about 9.30, I saw this guy walking down the street, and he fit the description fairly well. He was about the right height, 
build. And he looked really hinky because his right arm was straight. It didn't bend at the elbow. And he's wearing a long pea coat. Bowles jumped into action without another thought. This was his chance. So I stop him and I say, get up against the wall because I don't know what he had in that sleeve, but it didn't look right. So I started patting him down. He's got something in his sleeve and I lowered his arm and said, open your hand. And he did. And it was a sawed off baseball bat. That, that that was the first clue that this guy wasn't real right. So then I finished patting him down, and he'd got something down in his pants. So I pulled that out. It's a scimitar. It's a curved sword. I, I That's the first and last time I ever stopped at Crook, and he was carrying a scimitar. <laughs> Bowles is remembering this just a little hazily. It was actually a kukri, a curved knife that is similar to a scimitar, but not as long. He says he took this suspect back to the police station. Bowles booked him, and when he did, he found another piece of evidence. I'm not free to discuss specifically what it, what it is publicly, but I found some evidence that made me think that this guy was good for at least one of these murders. Was it some sketches? No, it was something that was, it, it, it was some indication that this guy had been in possession of some stolen property. That, and I can't say for a fact it was stolen, but let's put it this way. There ain't no doubt in my mind that was stolen property. Was, was it from one of the Doodler victims? Yeah. Bowles says he passed the evidence and the suspect off to homicide inspectors Rotay Guilford and Earl Sanders. Had he caught the doodler? I, I have some doubts in my in my mind, but no real strong doubts. Plus, he had some crimes in his history that would match this sort of guy. So he fit my profile about as tight as anything. A cookery is more like a machete than a stabbing knife. Police know a steak knife was used in the diplomat's attack, but no weapon was found at the scene of any of the other doodler incidents. So this cookery could actually be a viable doodler weapon. And Bowles says this suspect did have a history of arrests. There are certain guys you'd get that feeling from. You, you meet some guys that are just evil to the core. Seldom, seldom have I been wrong with that. In fact, I don't think I ever have. It's unclear what happened to the cookery wielder. That piece of evidence Bowles found on him was pretty incriminating. Dan Cunningham told me it was a pawn slip. This guy had sold a wristwatch belonging to the doodler's fourth known victim, Fred Cappen. But detectives couldn't link it to the murder. The watch was apparently stolen from Cappen's apartment before he was murdered. A few months after Bowles made that arrest, Rotea Gopher told the San Francisco Sentinel that there were several suspects being looked at. I was able to get Dan Cunningham to tell me that the original case files include 16 suspects. That sketch must have kick-started the tip line. I don't have tabs on all of them, but the man James Bowles arrested is one of them. And the others? Some of them shared the doodler's artistic streak. There's two, at least two, at least have, we have those photos of, of sketches they had done. 
Cunningham says at least one man was apprehended for bringing a sketchbook into a gay bar. And there was another man offering to draw sketches of patrons in a tenderloin bar. He was carrying a butcher knife and a book of drawings. That sounds spot on. So the cops were getting more leads. And the case had a new sense of momentum. But casting with such a wide net gets complicated, right? The circumstances of some arrests can get a bit shaky. The composite sketch was detailed, but the suspect description was fairly broad. So any young black man carrying a sketchbook into a bar, or even just walking down the street, could be stopped. This was the 1970s. Racial and sexual prejudice was explicit in the SFPD, even in the prestigious homicide department. Only one year earlier, the SFPD had been stopping and profiling hundreds of black men during the zebra murder case, a move that the federal court called a civil rights violation. And remember, when Earl and Rotea first became inspectors, they were held to a different standard by the old boys' atmosphere in the department. I didn't mention that since 1973, they'd been participating in a lawsuit alleging the SFPD was biased against hiring minorities. Earl wrote in his book, The Zebra Murders, that at one point, a crowd of something like 200 white officers gathered to protest their allegations in that lawsuit. As Earl and Rotea pushed through the crowd, one even threw a racial slur as he called for a contract to be put out on their heads, to which Earl hotly replied, Why doesn't the asshole who said that come over here and try to make good on that contract himself? So, inspectors Guilford and Sanders were actively fighting the inequities within the SFPD. Earl's son, Marcus Sanders, told me his father's hunt for a suspect was purely focused on catching the bad guy. But I don't know how they felt about sending that very police force out into the streets to hunt down a black suspect. If they were alive today, we could ask them. I did ask Rotea's widow, Jude, but she said he never discussed his work with her. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. The sketch was getting police closer to catching the doodler than they had ever been. But for the regular bar-goer, the sketch wasn't going to protect them from another knife attack. The queer community was entirely fed up with the lack of security in their neighborhoods. They had been for a while. Whether it was marauding teenagers throwing bricks from a car window or a serial murderer on the prowl. Activist Ann Cronenberg said they took matters into their own hands. We had to come up with our own system of, of 
you know, kind of like a neighborhood watch or something. It's like, take care of ourselves. You know, we started, and this is a little later in the 70s, more like 73, 74, started the whole whistle movement. So everybody, men and women in the gay community, carried a whistle with them, you know, on your keychain, on wherever, so that if there was trouble, you could blow the whistle and a community member hopefully would come and, and help you. Because, again, you could not trust the cops for being there. By 1976, this coalesced into an organized effort. We were called the Butterfly Brigade, and we were gay, and, you know, the examiner called us vigilantes. That's former Sentinel editor Randy Alfred again. He was one of the organizers of the Butterfly Brigade. We were armed with whistles, (laughs) nothing else. And basically, we were what was later called a neighborhood watch. They wore robes, and some carried walkie-talkies. They could only afford a few. The Butterfly Brigade was a group of volunteers who actually patrolled the streets in the Castro. Harvey Milk came out on one or two occasions with us. He didn't come out on a lot because he didn't want a grandstand. If he signed up for a shift like everybody else, he did the full hour and a half watch. And we did two watches a night, Friday night and Saturday night. It was a huge commitment. The shifts went past 2 a.m. some nights. Randy Alfred wrote a story about the patrols in the Sentinel, and he said when someone yelled slurs from their car, the butterflies would write down their license plate number and send them a letter, just to let them know that records were being kept. And sometimes to let a parent know their teenage son was driving around town harassing people. The Butterfly Brigade was pretty small and limited to a few blocks in the Castro, but it did a lot of good. And even the cops seemed to agree. The brigade used peaceful intimidation against violent homophobes. The doodler was probably too careful to get caught by the Butterfly Brigade. He made sure his victims were well away from anyone or anything that could protect them. As I've said, The publication of the sketch meant a lot more tips were coming in. Many were bogus, but some were intriguing. Earl and Rotea were operating on a hunch. They suspected that the man who attacked the diplomat was the same person killing folks on Ocean Beach. But they didn't have hard evidence to support that connection. All they had were rumors about a sketch artist and a consistent pattern of attack. Until another lead fell into their lap. It was, an, it was an anonymous call, mm-hmm. and she gave a very specific name. A name? Dan Cunningham says the caller claimed that the name she gave was the man in the sketch and that he killed the people down on Ocean Beach. Approximately 10 days later, she called up again, a little upset, apparently agitated because she didn't think anything was getting done, mm-hmm. and uh, provided a license plate of the uh, suspect. This anonymous woman called twice. First, with a claim that she knows the man in the sketch. Second, with a license plate number to pressure the police into arresting him. Subsequently, did you, did the department then determine who the woman was and uh, talk to this person of interest? So, um, the investigators at that time started working up an individual that she provided a name for. Mm But just because the police got a name doesn't mean they could go kick down that person's door. 
Like Cunningham says, inspectors Earl and Rotea had to figure out more about the person named in the anonymous tip before they could pursue him outright. So they put him under police surveillance. Then the phone rang again. With that short period of time after, you got a third phone call from a, um, a secretary at a psychiatrist's office saying that um, the person that committed these, these beach murders had been seeing the psychiatrist that she works for. According to a later Chronicle article, the secretary called less than a week after the anonymous woman. The article references a fourth call, too. The fourth was the actual couple of days later, the actual psychiatrist himself. The psychiatrist alleged that his patient confessed during therapy, the same person the anonymous woman and the secretary had called about. Over the past three or four months, this patient had been talking about how he committed the murders on Ocean Beach. Rotea quoted the psychiatrist in the article, saying his patient was the doodler, quote, beyond any question. The doodler potentially had a name. Was he this therapy patient? Sitting on a couch week after week, month after month, confessing to these crimes? We have to know who that patient was. But to figure that out, we have to know first, who was the psychiatrist? This is a question Cunningham was looking at, too. He tells me Rotea and Earl's case file only has one line that hints at who the psychiatrist may have been. It says, Dr. Priest, Highland Hospital. My uh, experience in the past has been you spend endless hours and then suddenly one thing, you know, is the key and it unlocks it. That name and that location were things our private investigator Mike Taylor could work with. Highland Hospital is still in operation today. You know, hope, hope springs eternal. So Mike called up the hospital to see what records we could get about a doctor priest who may have worked there in 1975. But nothing. They told him that everything before the 90s had been purged. I tried to get more information out of Cunningham, but he got the same response from Highland Hospital that we did. Though he had a few small details that Mike and I could talk through. Dan was saying that uh, yesterday when we were walking around, that the psychiatrist had met with uh, the, the doodler suspect or person of interest um, at a, an actual clinic at Highland Hospital in Oakland back then. But there was something about what meeting at Highland and they had these temporary shacks set up outside the hospital or something like that. that yeah, mobile, mobile units. So I, I was gonna chase that out with somebody I interviewed long ago who was at Highland at the time um, and and just see I mean, if, if the guy's still alive and, and see if he remembers anything. Mike and I have called up every doctor priest who could have been practicing back in 1975, at least the ones we could find, but no luck so far. Why didn't Rotea and Earl write down the full name of this psychiatrist? Was Dr. Priest shorthand for something else? Or is this another matter of missing files? The doctor that I talked to a week ago brought this up. When I was talking about the psychiatrist at Highland Hospital who might have talked to the doodler, he said, whoever that was was probably in his or her 40s. So you'd be looking yeah. for someone in his or her 90s now. And, uh, good luck, but I don't think they're going to be around. You know. Yeah, really. And good luck having him be a or her be a, uh, uh, a witness 
You know, here, yeah. I ID this person from 45 years ago, Mr. Right. 92-year-old doctor. Right. That, could be, yeah. that could be tough. In Mike's conversation with the doctor, he also learned that the Highland Hospital files may not have been purged after all. They may be sitting in a storage unit somewhere, waiting to be reopened. We've put in a Public Records Act request for those files. Even more than the diplomat, this psychiatrist, Dr. Priest, could have information implicating the doodler back in the 70s. He had what every investigator wants, a confession. Next time on The Untold Story of the Doodler, Earl and Rotea interrogate the suspect. And what kind of things did he say? You know, I've had other people, I've done this to you before, and I enjoy, I enjoy this. So uh, your, your, your anguish and pain and everything else is, is something I enjoy type of thing. That's next time on The Untold Story of the Doodler. The Doodler is created by the San Francisco Chronicle and Ugly Duckling Films and produced in association with Neon Hum Media and Sony Music Entertainment. It's reported by me, the host, Kevin Fagan, and Mike Taylor. Produced and written by Tanner Robbins. Natalie Wren is our co-producer and Odelia Rubin, our supervising producer. Associate producers are Chloe Chobel and Ryan J. Brown. Our sound designer and composer is Hansdale Soup. Our editor is Nick White, and our executive editor is Catherine St. Louis. Editorial support from King Kaufman and Tim O'Rourke for the San Francisco Chronicle. Executive producers are Sophia Gibber and Lena Bausager for Ugly Duckling Films, and Jonathan Hirsch for Neon Hum Media. 